Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. I love people who are willing to tackle tough topics. For instance, are genetics useful in personalizing nutrition? Are the blue zones bullshit, traumatic brain injury, and others? This is why I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Tommy Wood today. And he's a research assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington Division of Neonatology. The majority of his academic work has been focused on developing therapies for brain injury in newborn infants, but also includes adult neurodegenerative and metabolic diseases, as well as nutritional approaches to sports performance. I'm going to link to his bio in the show notes because it's quite long, but Tommy's current research interests include physiological and metabolic responses to brain injury and their long-term effects on the brain health, as well as developing easily accessible methods with which to track human health, performance, and longevity. He lives currently with his wife, Elizabeth, and they share their house with two energetic and goofy boxers and in his spare time he can be found cooking barbecue which is something that we get into today mixing a good pot of coffee hiking reading or just lifting something heavy today tommy and i talk a little bit about those topics that i mentioned earlier are genetics actually useful for instance is nutritional epidemiology just a useful field at all We get into cannabis and how Tommy thinks about things like cannabidiol, and we tackle TBI, and specifically for somebody like myself who had numerous concussions growing up, what may be some therapies which have a good safety profile that one could potentially pursue. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Tommy, and a shout out goes to Mr. Greg Potter for the introduction. Thank you, my friend. Let's get on with the episode. If there's one staple in a high performance day for me, it's a good night's sleep. And a good night's sleep often starts with the night before, specifically taking care of my light late in the evening. I am in some ways an entrepreneur. And so I do work quite late in the evening sometimes. And often that revolves around getting in front of a screen. And so how do I protect myself? Well, whether it's TV screens, bad lighting, or computer screens, I have my blue light blocking glasses on. And the company that I've gone to now for years and refer people to, anyone from my clients to friends, family, et cetera, is Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. And Andy Mint has been on the show. I love what him and Katie have put together with Blue Blocks. And they have just some amazing stylish frames. So if you want to get your blue light blocking glasses, head on over to blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use the code DS15. You're going to get yourself 15% off. Let's get back to my conversation with Tommy Wood. Tommy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So... 
you're probably the first guest that I've had on that I would trust to actually advise me on how to make coffee. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I hear you're a Chemex guy and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm more of an AeroPress person, but okay. you have to sell me on the Chemex. How do you do it? So I, uh, I have all of the, or at least most of the necessary paraphernalia uh, to, to do this properly. So I have an induction heated gooseneck kettle where I get my um, my water to 205 degrees Fahrenheit, which is on the warmer side. You could go a little bit cooler. Um, is this like the fe- the fellow or whatever it's called? Uh, it's not the 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 stag fellow. I have actually one made by Chemex called the Chettle. Um, okay, but yeah, it would be the same thing, and you can dial up mm-hmm. the water the, the water up and down, and then obviously um, fresh ground beans. I have. Uh, I use a a, re, a reusable metal filter um, rather mm-hmm. than a paper filter, which I really like because um, there's just something like some of the some of the oils and flavors and like just like this tiny amount of the, the granularity that you get. So similarly, if you did it in a French press, you get a slight, you get a very different texture of coffee, and I I like that and I like the flavor profile better. So I use that in my Chemex, and then it's sixteen uh, to one water to grounds by weight. So I usually do two ounces of coffee, 32 ounces of water. Um, and obviously, and I, and I, and I weigh both. So I, so I have my Chemex on a scale as I put the water on. Um, you can get really uh, in-depth with the total brew time. So how long, you know, you know, and how slowly you pour the water. I'm still working on optimizing that, uh, but everything else, mm-hmm. um, that, that's, that's, that's essentially my, the first part of my morning routine. Um, is sort of brewing all those things, grinding the beans and putting it together. So is it just the flavor profile of Chemex that you enjoy, or is it the fact that you're getting sort of a larger filter uh, versus an espresso? I'm just curious how you arrived at Chemex. Yeah, so so I, I used to do all of my coffee in a French press because I, I preferred that um, to most other um, brewing methods. Uh, but this, and th- but then I sort of, as I upgraded things, I decided to try the Chemex and then try this metal filter. And I think it's a really nice balance um, between the different ways to do it. I don't, I'm not a big fan of espresso. I like a big cup of black coffee where I can really sort of taste the coffee and try various different beans. So it's it's the way, you know, it's just, it's, it's the, yeah, it's mainly the flavor profile that I end up getting out um, that I just really enjoy with a, with a, with a pour over. All right. Decoding superhuman has become the barista show today. So (laughs) (laughs) let's, uh, let's jump into a few things because I, there's so many topics that I could cover with with you. And so, um, you know, I love a lot of your, your recorded talks and one of them you did on genetics and there's something in there that you said about the problems with nutritional epidemiology. (laughs) And so I'm hoping we can get into that a little bit specifically, you know, why you're you're skeptical about it um both nutritional epidemiology and genetics mm-hmm. so to start i guess if we start with nutritional epidemiology um the the main reason i'm skeptical of it is because it's complete trash science i mean it's it's, it's <laughs> just it's just a hundred percent nonsense um mm-hmm. and and the reason for that is that it's really hard basically impossible to get people to accurately tell you what they eat um Mm -hmm. and 
no matter how you do it. Uh, I guess the two most common or, or well-known studies based in the US, there's those run out of the uh, Harvard School of Public Health by Walter Willett and Frank Hu. So that's the uh, health professionals follow-up study and the nurses health study. And they do a yearly um, food frequency questionnaire where you just get this huge list of foods. And then it says, on average, over the past year, how much did you eat? And that's like, how many tablespoons of heavy cream did you have per week for the past year? Like, I'm not that, sure I'm going to remember that for last week, right? No, exactly. Food tracking. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like that for literally every possible food. Um, and then mm -hmm. the, the other one is the NHANES. And what they do is a 24-hour dietary recall. So they call you up and they say, what did you eat yesterday? And you tell them. And then they say, how typical is that of your normal diet? Like, do you eat more or less of these various things? And that's it. And, and then and then they take that data and then 30 years later, they say, oh, because this person had two more tablespoons of heavy cream on average per week over the year that we asked them, they're more likely to get heart disease, which is, I mean, <laughs> and when you think about it, it is absolutely insane that we think that this is reliable data. And what's really nice is that people have actually looked at this. And so there's a couple of... Um, uh, papers published looking at the quality of the NHANES data. And basically, if you look at what they report, um, more than 60% of reports, uh, the like the calorie, the total calories reported are incompatible with that person being alive. Um, mm -hmm. So one example so is- So too low or too high? Too high. Like they're under-reporting okay. by up to 50% in some wow. cases. And then okay. like, so, so like- even if that half is correct, you don't know what the other half of their calories are, which is going to make a huge difference. So, so one example is a very well-cited study uh, or paper uh, published in Cell Metabolism in 2014, looking at protein intake and mortality risk. Uh, and they mm -hmm. sort of then they specifically said that if you're under 65 and you have high protein intake, then you have an increased risk of uh, both all-cause mortality and cancer mortality. And so when you look at their data, and it's hidden in a table in, in the supplementary like information for the paper, and this is based on NHANES data. If you look at the you, you look at the sort of the demographics or um, you know the anthropometrics of the of the of the people included, and they, they were supposed to have that says underneath that BMI is in the table, but it's not, but there is waist circumference. And if you go by waist circumference um, for um, sort of like the level what you would expect in terms of obesity on average these people are obese mm -hmm. um or at least close to it certainly overweight and in the high protein group which is the one where they're saying because of this high protein you're going to have increased risk of death they are reporting 1500 calories per day on average so they have definitely <laughs> underreported by 50 percent or more yeah. and in the us what are those 50 percent of calories going to be they're going to be refined carbohydrates and fats it's not because <laughs> They ate, you know, they're not underreporting their lean chicken breast, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, this this is the quality of the data, and this is what we're using to say, hey, if you eat more or less of this, this is going to be your health outcome. Um, and we just do not know the majority of what people are eating in these studies. So there's just there's no way, there's no way to to understand this. And and people, again, like Walter Willett and Frank Hu will say, oh, but we verify that this is gold standard by doing blah, 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 blah. But, you know, once it's out in the wild and once you're doing this on a, on a, on a population size basis, this stuff just doesn't work. Um, it's, yeah. it's terrible. 
And, and so I imagine that, and I, I kind of hinted that we're going to go into genetics here. You kind of have similar feelings about genome-wide association studies in the sense that it's just massive populations and you're kind of searching for a needle in the haystack, which may not exist. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we had this, um, you know, over the past 20 years, we've had this increasing um, obsession with our genetics, and it's been both on a on a on a population. Thank you, Craig Ventner. Right <laughs> on, on a population level as well as you know, this was going to be the key to personalized medicine and, and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. what you know, when you look at this, and it, it kind of depends on on what you're trying to achieve. But when you look at this in terms of say standard health outcomes like what are we worried about on a population level in terms of population health and we're worried about people being overweight and obese you know having high bmi and bmi is a sketchy way to look at it but that's the way it's reported in studies and maybe you know types of diabetes or or fasting blood sugar you know and and when you when you look at um even polygenic risk scores so so basically you sort of sift your way through all of this information and you find x number of single single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs associated with an outcome. So say it's weight or BMI. And like the current state of the art, uh, I believe, is 141 SNPs all used, put into an algorithm to try and predict uh, your BMI. And mm-hmm. as your polygenic risk goes up across these 141 SNPs, yes, your, your average BMI goes up. But including all of these genes, it only explains 13% of the variability in BMI, which basically means that 87% is driven by the environment. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, then when you look at individual genes, you also see um, similar effects. So like FTO is probably the one that people have heard heard of, right, in terms of BMI Mm -hmm. or being obese, um, uh, fat mass and obesity associated protein. And when you look at... um, Individual populations, so again, they've looked at this in the US, if you, uh, FTO is only associated with an increase in increased risk of or higher BMI or increased risk of obesity in the post-war era. So before we had the, you know, the modern obesogenic environment, these things didn't even matter. Mm-hmm. So again, like even the genes that are associated with the outcome, you know, it's an interaction between the gene and the environment and the environment is what drives almost all of the risk. So when we spend all this time vacillating about FTO gene means we should do X or eat less saturated fat, which is like just crap science multiplied by crap nutritional epidemiology. We're just like completely missing the the forest for the trees, and and or the and the um and then you know similarly in our kind of world in the biohacking world we get like super uh, focused on something like MTHFR, right? Yeah, <laughs> you you have um you you know. And the language is things like your MTHFR doesn't work properly, right? That's yeah. the that's that's the language. It's fear mongering, right? Yeah, it's and it just... really is. And so, eighty five percent of people have an MTHFR um, gene or protein that doesn't function properly, right? So then, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, so like the average person has a re- has a reduction in function. So, so mm-hmm. automatically, you can't say it's not working properly because that's just part of the normal distribution. Mm-hmm. Then when you look at how these things interact and you look at something that you might care about, like your homocysteine level, like your MTHFR um, function, like almost has no relation to your actual homocysteine level, despite what Chris Masterjohn will tell you about how much choline you need to eat for like your given X percent decrease of MTHFR function. Like Ooh, it's just a choline calculator. I yeah. Know that one. <laughs> which is, 
Ooh, yeah, and the um, go for it. Yeah, so I put my 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 information into the coding calculator, and mm-hmm. I actually have. I'm um, I'm I'm heterozygous for both of the major SNPs in mm-hmm. MTHFR. And what's nice about the fact that there's two SNPs is you can kind of see how they interact in terms of function. So I have more than a fifty percent loss of function, um, and because of that, I need to eat twice as much coding, uh, supposedly. But the study that is used, cited in the calculator to say that I should eat twice as much choline is a study looking at folate deficient, uh, 13 folate deficient uh, Mexican-American men. And even in that study, eating more choline didn't affect methylation status, right? And mm-hmm. then, then the fact that it's a small study, it's poorly controlled, it's not relevant to me, it's of people of a different ancestry, and we, and we know that ancestry plays a big role. So if you have an FTO SNP, but you're black, then it doesn't have an effect on your weight, but it does if you're white. So, right, all of this stuff comes into play. And like, then there's the then there's the fact that the main assumption that's made in the coding calculator is that if you look at the people with the most significant um, decreases in function, then they they assume that there's a linear effect in terms of like, here's the people with 100% function, here's the people with 25% function, there's a there's an assumption that there's a linear a linear requirement across MTHFR function and coding requirement, but mm-hmm. those people who have a very that that one specific SNP, they're just completely different. And actually, you can overcome all of it with a very small dose of riboflavin, and the effect isn't linear at all. So, like all of the assumptions that go into the calculator are just one hundred percent nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that coding isn't important, right? I'm I'm a brain researcher. Coding is very important for the brain, but just like when you boil it down. To these very simplistic things, all you're doing is causing fear mongering that really isn't based in science. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, it just goes back to the whole idea that the reductionist approach to anything is probably not the the right way to go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back to genetics, before I get into the overarching question of are these useful or how they can be useful, there's one that <laughs> talk about fear mongering, APOE. And just sort of APOE and the saturated fat connection. And you mentioned saturated fat slightly earlier. Um, Curious your thoughts about that, especially since my understanding, uh, at least historically, is that we evolved from an APOE4 variant. But I may have that wrong. Yeah, no, that that's right. It's it's the oldest it's the oldest variant from when we climbed down from the trees, um, essentially. And Mm -hmm. it is, you know, your APOE4 status is is probably one of the few genes where I think like an individual SNP is associated with a certain outcome. So particularly for Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease, uh, but also potentially cardiovascular disease. But the effect is quite small. So it explains about your APOE4 status explains about 5% of the variance in your outcome with respect to mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So it, so it has a meaningful effect, but relative to all these other things, uh, I think the effect is quite small. Um, mm-hmm. However... It does seem to be associated with a slightly more inflammatory, quote-unquote, inflammatory phenotype, and potentially uh, there's an interaction with saturated fat. Um, however, I don't think that's necessarily – that means that if you are APOE4 heterozygous or homozygous, you should avoid saturated fat. But I think mm-hmm. um, it's it's so, it's somewhere where maybe you have to make – you know just like a, a, pay a little bit more attention. Uh, to things, mm-hmm. I think that that's worth that's always worth thinking about. Um, however, again, in the in the grand scheme of things, um, the effect is is very small. And if you look at the age of onset 
of Alzheimer's disease in ApoE4 homozygotes versus those who are non-ApoE4 homozygotes. So that could be ApoE4 heterozygotes or, you know, various combinations of twos and threes. Mm-hmm. Only about a third of people with who are ApoE4 homozygotes are diagnosed with Alzheimer's earlier than you would expect to be diagnosed if you had any of those other ones. Yeah. So in my mind, then there's only a third of people who, ha- who are ApoE4 homozygotes who have like a significant penetrance of that genetics, right? Because, you know, then the other two thirds are diagnosed in a time that fits the normal distribution of people with other combinations of ApoE. So uh, so there is a significant effect, but it's probably smaller than most people um, say it is. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also interesting stuff like if you look at the Bolivian semen, uh, who are a hunter-gatherer tribe who've been studied very intensively uh, in terms of their health outcomes, because you know there aren't that m- that many where we've been able to sort of like go in and study things. And of course, like anytime you go in and study something, you you're going to change it. But this this is this is sort of the way we look at it. And in that group, um, if they have a high parasite burden, which either you know you see the parasites directly or they have an eosinophilia, you know, high eosinophils on a blood test. And they have ApoE4, either you know heterozygous or homozygous. They actually have a protection of cognitive function. Yeah. So there is a an interaction between the environment and the gene and what is expected. And I think you know the my and my personal approach is to try and sort of use you know take some information from what may have been uh, you know your ancestry, the environment that you evolved in. And I think the ApoE4, like people who have ApoE ApoE4. Um, they just, you know, they will likely or potentially, they will potentially have um, a greater detrimental effect from like the environmental mismatch that, that we're exposed mm-hmm. to in terms of diet and sleep and stress and all that kind of stuff. So again, I think, you know, it's it's possible that those people may just have to pay a little bit more attention uh, to their lifestyle in order to, to make sure that they don't see the negative effects of that. Mm-hmm. And so for people out there who are either have already spent money on like a 23andMe or something like that, um, or uh, have invested a lot of time kind of perusing, I, I guess, Prometheus was sort of the database that I went oh, yeah. to originally, mm-hmm. um, you know, what kind of useful stuff can we get out of this? Is there anything we can get from a performance perspective or is it pretty, pretty much genetic disease driven? Yeah. Um, there's not very much from a 23andMe report that I find particularly interesting or particularly yeah, useful. The, the ancestry one is kind of <laughs> just like boring in a way. Yeah. It's, <laughs> depends um, on where they cut the borders. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, so I, I think there's, there's some potential, and this is obviously where 23andMe will make most of their money is with their deal with GlaxoSmithKline to, yeah. to do better pharmacogenomics. That's kind of, that's been the whole uh, business plan all along, right? Selling yeah. two, selling one $200 genetic test is never going to be a long-term business plan. So mm-hmm. from the the SNPs in, say, the cytochrome P450 enzymes and how you metabolize different drugs, that's probably one of the areas where um, the evidence is strongest for an effect. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, and I certainly think that, that could be beneficial for, you know, dosing and personalizing, you know, when you're going to be taking medications, you know, like knowing like whether you should take more or less of something because, you know, it's going to change its half-life based on a given SNP. And, the, you know, the, de- mm-hmm. the the data there is reasonably good. And so then that may affect your ca- right, your CAP2A1, your caffeine metabolism, right? So yeah. are you a fast or slow caffeine metabolizer? I think that there's some potential 
potentially useful information there. I certainly, if you're a slow metabolizer, you know, less caffeine earlier in the day certainly is probably going to have an effect on sleep. Um, mm -hmm. And then also there's an increasing amount of data looking at um, caffeine metabolism and then whether you respond to caffeine as an ergogenic aid uh, in sports performance. And those who are fast metabolizers seem to um, respond better to caffeine as an ergogenic aid, uh, sort of if mm -hmm. I had to pick one sort of broad outcome. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's it's bad for the rest of us. So I'm a I'm a I think I'm a heterozygote for that. So I'm a moderate metabolizer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably the area where I think this data is is potentially useful. But when it when you're looking at disease risk, um, you know, obesity, type two diabetes, you know, and 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 the problem is that most of the data you get directly from 23andMe, they've done it through subjective questionnaires or you know sending people questionnaires. Yeah. So like when I learn that I'm a moderate caffeine metabolizer or, or whatever, then 23andMe tells me that I have I'm more likely to drink more caffeine. What does that mean? That literally means nothing. That's just because you ask people, of, you know, about their <laughs> about you know that you know what their what their genotype is, and then you ask them about their caffeine drinking habits. That's not useful mm -hmm. to me. Um, and so that's what. And then there's other stuff like, oh, you have this, so you're more likely to move in your sleep. Like, pff, like really, like what is how is that useful? <laughs> but but this yeah. is like sort of it, it gives you the it gives the um, the illusion of useful data, which, which is not really meaningful. And obviously, that's mm -hmm. because they're their uh, their business uh, is is elsewhere and they have yeah. whatever it is a, a few million genotypes so they they have enough to then do the other stuff that they want to do and so they don't really care about giving you meaningful data so have you seen any of these sort of um, online genetic diet calculators that are even worth their weight because i find mm. for instance the single snip analysis of like whether or not you are a high or low fat diet um that just kind of irks me a little bit, especially yeah, if it's the, not an APOE. <laughs> yeah, there's, so there's no evidence to support those whatsoever. Um, okay. And when when you actually look at people who've tried to examine this, um, you might have. So there's, there were the food uh, the food for me studies uh, based in Europe. So they they looked at giving targeted nutritional interventional advice. So it was uh, FTO, reduced saturated fat, um, MTHFR uh, increase. Um, it was increased folate and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when they look, well, there are two important outcomes. One is that when they, when they looked at people who got the different advice, basically being told about your genetics doesn't affect your behavior. And that is, mm -hmm. is, that is reflected across multiple different studies. There was a mass analysis that came out a few years ago that showed that again. And then equally, even in those people who got the advice, it didn't really make any difference in terms of any of the things that they measured. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then there's, then there's the, uh, another example, like, um, Chris Gardner's diet fits study, uh, where they yeah. randomized people either to low fat or carbohydrate, uh, both generally improving diet quality. And then eventually people were allowed to sort of iterate their way into something they felt that was sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. and then they looked at, you know, supposed low fat or low carb genotypes in the two different groups. And basically, regardless of your genotype and the diet you're randomized to, everybody lost the same amount of weight. Um, so, mm -hmm. so again, like there was, a no, and there were no other sort of biomarkers that suggested that because you have a low fat genotype meant that you did better on the low fat diet. There's really no evidence to support any of that. So, any of you know, so um, I'm trying. There's the um, so I, I can imagine like a. I'm just wondering. There's a flip side risk factor here that if you tell mm -hmm. somebody that you know. 
they have APOE or I mean the MTHFR one's still my favorite. Uh, you tell somebody that they have dopamine issues and then they just kind of become neurotic, right? And just yeah. and, I, I can and, imagine causes more harm than good in this case. Yeah, and you know what you tell people actively affects their physiology. So there's a great so so on the on the dopamine front, uh, there's there's a great quote from uh, Robert Sapolsky which says that. Um, thinking that you have the warrior genotype, which is uh, COMT, so how fast or slow do you metabolize dopamine? Yeah. Will have a you know thinking that you have that genotype will have a greater effect on your physiology than actually having it. Um, and there's there's loads of very nice information that and, and studies that show that telling somebody they have a specific genotype, even if they don't, directly affects their physiology. So there was a study where they took people, they put them on an exercise like treadmill test. Then they told them either you have the good copy of the aerobic gene or the bad copy of the aerobic gene. The people who were told they had a good copy, when they redid the test, they did just as well as they did before. The people who were told they had a bad copy, they did less well on the exercise test because they've just been told that they have um, that they have you know poor aerobic genetics. And again, like no evidence to support that. But if you tell somebody that they have poor genetics, you will negatively affect their physiology. So like. There's almost, you know, for most of these things, particularly from the direct-to-consumer side, there's almost no benefit and there's, you know, uh, potential for significant harm. I'm just, I guess it's not, you said that it's not the flip side of the positive. So in my future kid's life, I can't like secretly say like, hey, you have good genes, even if they don't have good genes, and then potentially make them into a professional athlete, right? It doesn't yeah. quite work uh, like that. Un- unfortunately, we, yeah, the, unfortunately, it, it, and, and well, it could actually be ha- the language that we use. So if you change the yeah. language and you were like, your genetics are amazing. This is going to, you know, this is going to mean that like when you're playing basketball, you're going to beat all the kids. You're going to outrun them. I think there's possibly like you could possibly see something there. But in general, yeah. the way we talk about genetics is like either you're normal, either you have MTHFR function of 100%, which only 15% of people do, or you're abnormal, right? So you can't. So like, there's only po- there's only possible like there's only possibility of being Downside. worse. Yeah, right. Yeah. But like everything is either normal or bad, which again mm-hmm. like isn't doesn't make any sense uh, in, in normal physiology. So if you change the language, and so there's one example where this potentially happens in in that same study where they did the aerobic test and told them about their genetics or randomized them to tell them about their genetics. They also did it with the FTO gene, mm-hmm. and so they said to people like you either have like the good version or the bad version of the FTO gene in terms of, you know, you're less likely to be overweight or more likely to be overweight in the people who they told them they had the good copy, less likely to be overweight after a standardized meal, the second time after they told them, uh, and again, this is regardless of, regardless of their actual genetics, they had higher uh, GLP one signaling and greater satiety from a, from a, uh, a single meal. So being told that they had the genotype that was protective against gaining weight, they got, you know, they got more satiety from a given meal. Uh, and you saw that in terms of satiety hormone signaling. So that was actually a benefit of saying, do you know what? You have the protective genotype. They were they were going to feel more, you know, full after a meal. And then, then over time, they might end up, eat, you know, eating less or having better satiety regulation. But that's, that's the one example that I have uh, of a benefit of being told uh, about Ooh. your genetics. I might have to use this one with Thanksgiving dinner table with some of my family members, but... <laughs> I uh, want to transition here, Tommy, to something that uh, I've just kind of delved into the research a lot lately, uh, or the, what exists of the research. And I, I'm kind of curious how you look at just sort of the world of cannabis, because mm. 
the research is, to my understanding, somewhat limited. Um, but also some of the ways that the research is conducted is by surveying clinicians and sort of getting the effects from clinicians. And I, for somebody like you, how do you look at cannabis and sort of how those studies are done? Um, and what, what needs to change other than the schedule one being dropped in order to learn more about it? Cause I mean, you hear a lot of practitioners using it, particularly in California, West coast, mm. um, and here in Amsterdam, but you know, how, what do you think about cannabis and what can we do to make the research a little bit better? Yeah. Uh, I th- the, the problem with the way that research that you mentioned in particular is conducted is that we can't really extract any meaningful information from it in reality. And, and this is something, so, so, I mean, the first step of any, of trying to answer a scientific question or, you know, um, develop a hypothesis and then test it is, is this kind of stuff. So you, 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 you um, generate either pilot data or you, you know, you collect what is currently known. And so that is an important first step. Um, mm-hmm. However, it then requires actual testing and, and what you see across all the different realms of health-based research is that you know when you when you have one clinic or one group of people who who use something because they believe in it first of all you're going to get a strong placebo effect second of mm-hmm. all it's uncontrolled so you don't have anything to compare it to and as you know the um the classic Voltaire quote is that the art of medicine is entertaining the patient while nature cures the disease so <laughs> you 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 basically you have this thing that you you tell the patient is super important right they get a great placebo effect and then you know they keep coming back and you keep working on them and then over time they're probably going to get better anyway but you as, you ascribe it to the intervention that you put in place um, mm-hmm. and so that's where I think a lot you know a lot of that positive data is coming from and it doesn't mean that I don't think there isn't benefit there it's just that that's that's all that you can say from the quality of data that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're then isolating individual compounds and want to test them, right? So the, the majority of my work is testing neuroprotective compounds or potentially neuroprotective compounds in animal models of brain injury. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's my bread and butter. And so there is a lot of interesting, inf- um, you know, data on CBD, say, if we just going to isolate one component yeah. as a neuroprotective agent and we have tested it in our lab or we did in the lab, I did my PhD. And actually didn't see much. Um, however, there are other labs that have seen benefit. And I'm not going to say that we did the right science and theirs is wrong. So I, I think there is a, a potential benefit, say, of CBD. It's also used in pediatric epilepsy and high doses. I have a colleague who does that and, you know, uh, sees some some interesting benefits. So mm-hmm. so in, in that respect, I think we're kind of at the point where the animal data is probably good enough to suggest well, then we then need to go into clinical trials and mm-hmm. those are being done but you know we don't really have the outcome data to suggest yes in, in this specific setting say cbd is neuroprotective um and mm-hmm. at the same time um where there's a huge you know sales push for this stuff already yeah. to suggest that it's beneficial and like there's some potential downsides there because you know, it's already being taken up. It's already being sold. People are using it. Um, and there's really no evidence to support that. So in athletes, CBD is supposed to improve recovery, but really like there's no good data, um, on that. 
Yeah, I kind of think like CBD just kind of looks like Bitcoin was a couple of years ago in terms mm, of a bubble. Yeah. Although, I mean, Bitcoin's making a little bit of a resurgence right now. But, and I mean, if there's no, what what's going to prick the bubble that is CBD? I mean, is it these clinical trials coming on? I mean, how do you get the clinical trials ramped up faster in a way? Yeah, it, it's really, so, so I think that you are just like the, um, the psychedelics uh, for mental health research, you know, uh, the, there's always going to be a bit of pushback when, um, you know, these components, uh, you know, come from something that is a, a schedule, a scheduled drug, um, yeah. with, uh, with, I mean, CBD is probably a little bit easier because you can get it from hemp oil. They've changed it such that as long as it's less than 0.3% THC, it's not classed in the same way as cannabis. So like there's been some movement that's going to potentially mm-hmm. allow that to happen faster. Um, but in reality, you've basically got to rely on researchers being interested enough to convince whichever NIH study section they submit their grants to that, you know, this is going to be worth 10 or 15 million dollars to test uh, in, in a certain intervention and so like, there's only so much money to go around so mm-hmm. you know if we may be particularly interested in cbd but there could be however many other compounds and however many other diseases that also require um some investigation so you know unfortunately this stuff is is always going to be fairly slow moving because that's sort of the nature of the beast in terms of like how what what's the total pot of money available what are the total number of diseases to look at and then the number of mm-hmm. different interventions um and so that's always going to keep things fair you know fairly slow or slower than we'd like so with cannabidiol you've kind of heard it at least in this bubble that we exist in uh used as sort of a potential sleep agent um uh, potentially an anxiolytic, uh, maybe even anti-inflammatory. Uh, and you mentioned neuroprotective. Of those, are there any that we can just strike out and say like, hey, that it's not possible right now? Or mm. is it stored TBD? When it comes to hosting a podcast, things like focus, short-term memory, and verbal fluency become very useful. In fact, those three are very useful in almost any aspect of life. And slightly over a year ago, I came across an early prototype of what became Bluducanatine. I loved it so much that, well, I eventually became involved with the company. There's obviously a few steps missing there, but Bluducanatine is something that I take sort of uh, when I need it, not every day. And I take a half a trochee, which is something that goes in your upper lip. I let it dissolve and I have what is called or what we refer to as limitless mode for four to six hours. That allows me to focus. It allows me to be verbally fluent and it allows me to talk to guests like Tommy in a way that, well, I can ask hopefully intelligent questions. If you want to join the Smurf Nation, and if you want to really get yourself a blue tongue and be in limitless mode for four to six hours, I encourage you to head over to Troscriptions.com. You can use the code BOOMER and you'll get yourself 10% off. Now, full candor here, I receive zero compensation for this, but I am involved with the company. So at some point in the future, that may be worth something. But Head on over to troscriptions.com, use the code BOOMER, and I look forward to hearing your feedback as to, well, really what you think about Smurf Mode. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I think all of them have a little bit of TBD um, mm-hmm. sort of attached to them. The 
the information the the data that I find most interesting is in in terms of inflammation in the gut uh, with, with mm-hmm. CBD because then you don't need to worry about it being absorbed and circulating and ending up in the brain. And bioavailability is pretty much a problem with any, any promising compound, like getting it to the place yeah. where you want it to be. But there's some interesting data in mouse models of inflammatory bowel disease where um, you know a reasonable dose of CBD is is quite protective for the gut. Um, mm-hmm. and so I definitely like to see more of that. Um, and we've certainly had people again, try it in IBS and IBD and, you know, they feel like they, they see benefit. Um, again, is that, uh, a $3 a day placebo effect? I'm not sure, but if they feel much better and healthier, then maybe it's worth it. Um, mm-hmm. for, for sleep, I'm probably, that's probably the closest to where I, I don't think it's really what people have, have said it. It is, and when they've looked at CBD, in you know, re- so in small doses, it doesn't seem to have an effect on its own. In large doses, so we're talking like two to three hundred milligrams, it seems to worsen sleep. Um, again, like there's one study in healthy volunteers where it seemed to show that CBD on its on its own actually you know made you know made sleep worse. Um, mm-hmm. Where it has shown benefit with sleep is in chronic or like neurologically the pain or neurological disorders such as multiple sclerosis and then it's as something like sativex which has some thc in it so a combination mm-hmm. of cbd and thc in that setting may be beneficial for sleep uh, but again hasn't been tested in like normal healthy participants or athletes or somebody who's trying to sleep better for recovery that's in like spe- you know specific neurological pain-based conditions and then like the combination seems to be important so like cbd on its own for sleep um i'm not really convinced based on what we know so far. Mm-hmm. And some of the doses that you just mentioned are not exactly what you get at sort of your local pharmacy CBD, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. it's very hard to find 200 milligrams CBD. Uh, and if it's anywhere. and if it's high quality, that's going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, going on from cannabis, I want to come into sort of uh, part of what you do. Um, on a day-to-day basis and to the extent that you're able to talk about this is mm. uh, working with kind of the formula one, one world and this kind of group of elite high performers. And some of the things that you and I have talked about before is uh, what you can actually do with these people who are at the top of their game to improve performance. Mm. And I, I'm just kind of curious because, you know, when you, started working with these people there, you had a a big roadmap in terms of what you can potentially do in terms of behavior change. And what have you found really effective? And what have you found very hard about working with somebody who is uh, constantly plugged into, let's say the driver's seat, if you will? Yeah. So the interesting thing about working with this particular group is that they're probably more like the average person with respect to both their their lifestyle, you know, other than the the jet setting and the incredible financial resources and, and the, the the jet <laughs> lag, and I mean, you don't have a Picasso art collection or something like that. <laughs> no, sadly not. Although I could probably think of better things to spend my money on. But yeah, exactly. Um, the the in terms of the capacity and ability to make change, they're much more like the average person than the people I'd worked with previously, which would be what you know we'd call like optimizers so type a you know high profile high paid job also want to be an international triathlon athlete you know mm-hmm. on the side um and those people will literally try anything and everything they'll spend 
thousands of dollars to speak to every expert and try all of it. Um, and as soon as you tell them to do something, they'll do it. Um, yeah. And it's it's it, it's a nice group to work with because they'll just do what you say, or at least they'll try yeah. it out. Like, well, none of this really sticks long term, um, mm-hmm. but they'll try it out. But like the vast majority of people, that's not the case. And, and mm-hmm. so Formula One drivers are actually the same. You know, they have a limited capacity to start making significant change. A, because they have li- like limited cognitive real estate to do it, right? Because mm-hmm. they're just like continuously moving, continuously traveling. They have huge media commitments. They're, then they're in the simulator or they're working with the engineers to improve the car. Like there's just only so many hours in the day. Um, and so what you see is that you're reminded of the fact that picking the low hanging fruit is by far the most important thing and so you can and you mm-hmm. can see significant benefit in terms of um just like moving those big rocks and making sure that they're that they're moved and so i think of um uh one, like one example where i was looking at some sleep data and you know the, somebody was con- like the concerned about their sleep one of the drivers was concerned about their sleep and you just see right like you could get all this fancy data and it was from uh, our favorite fancy sleep monitoring ring um, <laughs> and like all these other all you know all this stuff that comes out but like you just look at one number is that you're just not not spend not spending more than five and a half hours in bed you just need mm-hmm. to be in bed for longer right mm-hmm. like no other fancy data required yeah. um and and so it's things like that and then when you when you sort of shift that and you, you allow that to happen they sort of build in re, you know then you talk about well why is it you're not spending much time in bed you know why is it that as soon as you wake up you want to get out of bed rather than thinking well maybe i could do some things to relax and go back to sleep um so focusing on those things then you start to see really big improvements and again it's just like the the the, the simple things that we know are important and so like that mm-hmm. is even important that is even crucial at the you know the sort of the pinnacles of, of performance um mm-hmm. and you know focus on the things that are most likely to matter because you just can't try and fix everything um and then like the other side uh which i which you know if i think about lessons learned from working in this arena is that even when um, you know, when you're when you're working with these high performers, like you can look at somebody and say, you know what, you're doing absolutely everything wrong. And the, and the blood biomarkers don't look great. And like everything that I would say you should do, you're not doing. And yet you can still like function at a level that most humans are just not capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's 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 a reminder that the the human physiology is incredibly robust yeah. uh, and incredibly resilient. And we're often talk like we often talk about these things from a position of frailty, right? Like we talked about like MTHFR, it's not working properly. Therefore, you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna have all these risks. But in reality, mm-hmm. you know, if you, you know, particularly if you sort of put the 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 body in, in, in a fairly um supportive environment, um, it's incredibly resilient and robust and you know, should be able to handle a lot of these stresses. And we just we talk ourselves into this sort of frailty mindset and i think that's that's where a lot of the the problems come from we're obviously we're always trying to optimize something at the Mm -hmm. same time we're we're, we're telling ourselves that we're not optimal therefore we're going to have a decrement in performance we're going to be having you know a a decrement in our long-term health um and i think that mindset is actually driving a negative effect on physiology um Mm -hmm. rather than actually what you know what is actually going on uh in the environment so like those are some of the interesting things that come out from working in, in with that group and, and so, this is interesting. The, the element of long-term health is uh, a particularly fascinating t- 
topic of discussion in the sense that do you think because these guys are so focused on the near term becoming the next F1 champion, whatever it is, uh, that the element of long-term health and concern of long-term health fades and therefore they're able to do this? Um, or is it mm. is it some other driving factor? Like, I, I don't know if you want to throw out the purpose word, uh, but something yeah, that's, else. Uh... That, that, that's a really good question. Um, and, and you could definitely think, well, I mean, you could, I mean, all elite athletes pretty much have to sacrifice some element of long-term health in order to, to achieve immediate um, performance. And so mm-hmm. like the, the tenet is that elite athletes are very fit, but they're not necessarily very healthy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and there's, a, you know, if I was going to recommend things that somebody do to, a, to maximize their opportunity for, you know, long-term health, most of the things that the athletes have to do to achieve that given performance, I would not recommend. Um, and there's certainly a case of, you know, to really perform, you need to liquidate some assets um, and sort of give those up and, and to get that performance. But maybe that's going to you know, cause longer term problems. And so not mm-hmm. being focused on the future, I think, does allow you to then get these these momentary um, elements of performance. But equally, you know, not if, if you had the worry about long-term health and performance, you know, that that is potentially going to hold you back because mm-hmm. I mean, any person who wants to live a long and healthy life with a long and healthy brain is not going to spend a lot of time driving at a wall at 200 miles an hour, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just, you know, um, uh, th- those things probably don't go hand in hand. So there's, yeah. there's definitely a certain personality type, but, but obviously, you know, the focus on the near term is, is, is going to be a big part of what allows them to, to perform in the way that they do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, wow, this is fascinating. So with with these guys, it, the typical kind of behavior modifications that you're able to do with them, or what are sort of the top three things that you wish some of these guys would change in order to you know, maybe perform 5-10% better? Is it sleep duration or is it or a couple of other things? Yeah, so, so I think the, the most important things that come up for that like sleep is is always going to be super important particularly because mm-hmm. they're basically in a content except for this year where they've been a bit more constrained in terms of their travel they're basically in a continuous state of jet lag um yeah. and like you just so there's no opportunity to establish a normal circadian rhythm so mm-hmm. so sleep finding ways to sleep i think is probably for these guys the, the most important mm-hmm. um and then uh nutrition is probably is probably the next one and it's very variable from driver to driver they all have very different um requirements but also interests in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of their nutrition and and so then that gives you a little bit of a, an additional um interesting factor in terms of optimizing this stuff however they're also in a position where they can offload some of it so they so the way that i work with these guys is mainly with their coaches so each of them has yeah. like a body person who is essentially you know if and if you know who they are and then you you watch formula one like they're always next to the car they're always next to the driver like they are there all day every day um 300 days a year sometimes it's like the consigliere that does everything yeah. for them right yeah, yeah. E- exactly and so mm-hmm. you know when it's appropriate and you know when the the coach has the interest and the driver has the interest and then the coach may like literally take over all aspects of food right so this is a coach with a master's degree in strength and conditioning and a, a huge you know a body of of work and experience and like they're the one scrambling the eggs to put in the in the burrito to like hand <laughs> to the driver as they get out of the car because you know if you want this stuff to happen 
you're going to have to do it. And so, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, again, I think there's some, there's some potential benefit or like, because these guys don't have to, right. They don't have to worry about feeding themselves because they may mm-hmm. have like an incredible chef. who just like, here are my macros for the day, you know, go for it. Right. And then mm-hmm. the food just appears. So, you know, offloading some of these worries again, I think allows them to, to then put their cognitive processes into things that are going to matter more for their performance. But mm-hmm. the downside of that or potential downsides are that they're maybe less engaged in some of these aspects of lifestyle that, that could be important to, to health. And again, this is very mm-hmm. variable from driver to driver. So like no sweeping statements. It really is. It's just, this is, is a, is a potential um, mm-hmm. downside. Um, and then the, but then, and then the other one is that you need to work very hard to convince them that something is worth doing because people always want, you know, these guys to test out their gadget, their device, their product, um, yeah. you know, so, so you have to show up with some really strong data to say, you know, this is actually worth your time. And, yeah. I, and I think that's, a, that's an important thing to do as well, because, you know, we're always like, oh, you know, here's this thing, maybe it's beneficial, like. But when you've got 50 people at any one time who are saying that to you, you're going to say, well, show me why. Um, and then that's mm-hmm. important as a sort of a, as a coach or a consultant or an advisor, because then you need to be really certain that there's a high chance of this is this is going to be beneficial before you start badgering somebody to, to implement it. And again, I think everybody should have that sort of barrier uh, of evidence required for you before you start unloading all of this stuff onto people, because again, that just yeah. becomes its own burden. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you just become sort of an affiliate commission man, uh, yeah. which is a little bit of what's going on in the world these days. Uh, let's talk about TBI because you talked about brains going into walls at 200 miles an hour. And, you know, I grew up in a day and age with guys like Junior Seau being linebackers in the NFL, and he's a pretty prominent case of TBI related suicide. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a lot of research on this. And I'm just kind of curious, first off, if we can qualify just kind of what, what do we know about TBI in terms of like, if you had a particular type of concussion, if you had a certain number of concussions, should you be concerned? And is there a way for, for our brains to naturally heal themselves in these cases, or do we have to take precautionary measures? Yeah, I think there's certainly enough data to suggest that after a significant TBI and what constitutes a significant TBI is going to be very different from person to person uh, for a mm-hmm. number of for a number of reasons. But you can certainly get long-term changes in say the, the inflammatory state of the brain. Um, you know, the, the general function of the brain and then the vulnerability of the brain to say future insults. So like you could have multiple concussions and then say you get a stroke later in life. Um, is that going to have a more significant effect or is it going to increase your risk of dementia, which certainly seems to be the case. And, and these mm-hmm. things in some way, I don't know whether they're additive or, or synergistic, but definitely the more exposure you have, certainly the, the, the greater the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are going to tr- think about ways, so, so say if you, you've had some, some previous concussions, or you have some kind of previous injury, um, I think there are a few things that um, could potentially be beneficial. And when I think about what is required to heal a brain, 
in my mind, it's very similar to what is required to grow a brain in the first place. And so then Mm -hmm. this is where some of my work in developmental neuroscience hopefully informs what you might do after uh, an injury later in life. Mm -hmm. So things that I think are important are omega-3 fatty acids, so DHA and EPA. Um, And there's a lot of interest in that. And there uh, there are clinical trials. There are people um, who are, you know, recommending... You know, very high doses after TBI, maybe 20 grams a day. So Michael Lewis wrote, <laughs> Holy wrote, shit. Michael Lewis wrote the book, uh, When Brains Collide. Um, yeah. And he's done uh, a lot of work on this. He has his omega-3 protocol. And it's very high doses. And so this is like after the acute injury in people who have significant cognitive deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, if you then, you know, take a couple of, you know, a couple of hand, handfuls of a good quality fish oil is, you know, what's the likelihood of there being a downside? It's very small. Um, you know, is there some potential benefit? Yes, because, you know, DHA is required for the, for the normal function of neuronal synapses um, and mm-hmm. mitochondrial function. So there's, 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 so I don't necessarily think that everybody who had a concussion should take 20 grams of uh, fish oil a day. Yeah. But, you know, certainly ensuring that these are in the diet, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can certainly get into the weeds if we want, but it, it's, it's not just, you know, the function of the brain itself, but it's also, you know, having these present in the brain in the setting of inflammation helps to resolve and normalize inflammatory processes because they are metabolized into things called pro-resolving mediators or specialized pro-resolving mediators. And so people may have heard of protectins, maresins, resolvins. These come from EPA and DHA and they help to sort of normalize inflammatory processes after an injury. So it's both useful in the injury itself and chronically, but then also potentially if you are in at risk of of a future injury. Um, mm-hmm. and, and creatine, I would put into that bucket as well. Uh, okay. there's, there's, a, there's a lot of very interesting data on creatine as a neuroprotective agent, um, mm-hmm. both if you have it on board before and after the injury. Um, and the, again, the, you know, all of the things that I'm going to recommend are like super low risk. Do I have mm-hmm. several randomized controlled trials to tell you that this is going to be beneficial? No, but you know, with this, they're so well studied and have such a good safety profile yeah. that I'm very comfortable recommending it to people. So creatine yeah. is is probably the best research supplement of all time yeah. um, and has almost no real risks and then mm-hmm. has been studied in multiple animal models as well as human um, disease, you know, disease states in terms of improving both mental health and cognitive function and, mm-hmm. and reducing uh, response to injuries. So that's another one. Um, we obviously talked about... Um, we obviously talked about sleep already, and I think sleep again is incredibly important. Um, I would probably have um, a lower threshold to recommend somebody take something like melatonin to help establish normal circadian rhythms, particularly if they're not sleeping well. You know, they have mm-hmm. previous concussions. And in line with that, um, I think it's very important, particularly if somebody has ongoing symptoms after some kind of brain injury, to do a full pituitary hormone check. So like mm-hmm. the pituitary, if people don't know it well, is this like tiny little grape that hangs on a stalk inside your brain. And it's where most of the hormonal regulation in the body happens. And it's very susceptible uh, to, to brain injuries. And so mm-hmm. when whenever anybody come, has sort of like come to me or has talked about ongoing symptoms after, after a brain injury, uh, you should just do a full pituitary screen. So LH, FSH, um, which obviously regulates sex hormone production, uh, growth mm-hmm. hormone, TSH for thyroid. Um, and you know, you, you can often see decrements that either appear over time or they may happen early and then resolve, but it's just, those things are always worth checking. And then mm-hmm. 
Um, particularly if the pituitary isn't asking for enough hormone, then maybe you need to think about how to replace that. Mm -hmm. um, the other the other two sort of nutritional things that I think are potentially beneficial are blueberry anthocyanins, um, okay. which, which I think are very interesting, both because they may have like a direct pharmacological effect. So some of the blueberry anthocyanins or berry anthocyanins seem to inhibit uh, matro, uh, matrix metalloproteases. So these are enzymes that are produced in the setting of injury that um, basically break down the extracellular matrix, but also decrease the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there's there's some studies uh, looking at these in the setting of both pediatric, uh, you know, or, or in kids or in adults with mild cognitive impairment. And they seem to maybe improve uh, both acutely and chronically uh, cognitive function. Uh, and maybe also, uh, like if you look at um, neuronal activation on FM, um, fMRI in the setting of a, of a memory task, there seems to be some improvement. So it's basically like a cup of wild blueberries and like the wild blueberries that are blue, small and blue in the middle, not those big fat things that they call blueberries <laughs> in America. Like who knows what they are. <laughs> that that so, you like, get it. What, what's the sort of Safeway or something like that? It's probably yeah, not the yeah, right exactly. place to get So these. like a, pro a proper wild blueberry. Uh, and again, so like what's the worst that could happen? You just had a nice cup of blueberries every day. Yeah. Um, and then, then the final thing is choline. Mm -hmm. And again, like obviously choline forms uh, part of the backbone of the phospholipids that, that build essentially a brain. Um, and there's been a lot of interest in CDP choline, particularly, so citicoline in the setting yeah, of traumatic you hear brain about, injury. And you also hear about that in the nootropic world quite a bit, right? And so it's... Yeah. Um, and they've actually, there, were, there was a study, I think back in the 70s, where they compared paracetam to citicoline in wow. the setting of traumatic brain injury and citicoline had a had a better overall effect but it was, it was a very mm -hmm. it was a very i mean it's a very small study mm -hmm. um you know and most of the studies that do show benefit are again fairly small so like comparing seven people with concussion on codeine versus seven people with concussion on placebo mm -hmm. um so there does seem you know again it's one of those low risk high potential benefit um uh supplements mm -hmm. um the largest trial to date, uh, the COBRIT trial, uh, basically compared traumatic brain injuries of a, of a wide range. They had to be hospitalized, and they gave them two grams of codeine a day and actually didn't see benefit. Uh, but the problem with that particular trial, and this is just if people are looking at it, the problem with that particular trial is that less than 50%, I think 44% of people in the choline arm got 70 or took 75% or more of their doses. So basically, more than half the people in the trial didn't even get a dose. And so that's mm -hmm. maybe one of the reasons why they didn't see anything. So mm -hmm. like those are things where, you know, if people, particularly if people are, you know, think they have either a risk or some kind of cognitive deficit um, uh, after concussions or TBIs, uh, then, you know, DHA, creatine, uh, blue brown science, choline, uh, potentially exogenous ketones, um, Oh, that's um, an that's an interesting one. Okay, what, yeah. why exogenous ketones? Let's jump into that. Yeah, so it's uh, a great question. Again, it comes back to what it to um, how you build a brain in the first place, and mm -hmm. you. So you could potentially go on a therapeutic ketogenic diet. You know, if people want to try that, that's great. And some people, you know, anecdotally report that they see benefit there, and there are also clinical trials of this currently ongoing. Um, the easier way to do it, although potentially a much more expensive way to do it, is with exogenous ketones. So I don't think that the source of the ketones matters. Um, but when you look at neonates uh, who, are, who are actively trying to grow a brain, they are, at least for the first week of life, and then intermittently 
for weeks and months after they're born in a state of ketosis. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. either because there's, M- there's MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides, actively made in breast milk to encourage mm-hmm. the production of ketones, or because you know, in the fasted state, they go into ketosis very quickly, like within a few hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because ketones are the preferred synthetic precursor for fats and cholesterol in the brain. Mm-hmm. So if you give a developing brain either glucose or ketones, the the ketones will go into synthetic pathways and the glucose will go into energy metabolism. Now, of course, mm-hmm. the brain can also use ketones for energy metabolism, but the ketones specifically seem to be um, preferred for synthetic precursors. So if you're trying to build fatty membranes and put cholesterol into it, then and most of that is synthesized locally in the brain rather than coming from the circulation, then ketones seem to be um, a, a very uh, seem to be the preferred source. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's one reason why. Again, if you if you think there's some risk or some cognitive deficit, or you're trying to recover the brain, then then I, I think ketones are potentially going to be beneficial. The other side of that being that the brain really doesn't like high spikes in blood sugar, uh, particularly yeah. acutely after the injury. Um, but you know, I would also say that if you have a vulnerable brain because you've exposed it to these these traumas previously, then trying to keep your blood sugar under control. Uh, or at least avoiding, you know, multiple large spikes every day is probably going to be beneficial as well. Okay, so there's a few things that I want to dissect here, but the f- yeah. let's start start at the beginning because there's a number of people listening to this, uh, myself included, who were sort of uh, at a younger age, much more competitive athletes. Like mm-hmm. the last concussion I had was 18 years ago. I spent a night in the hospital, but the information that we had on TBI back then was not very much and i or it could also be the doctor that i was working with at the time right and so is there a certain qualifier that you would go through as kind of a working professional today who had childhood brain injuries that would say like hey this is something i need to pay attention to is there like an amount of concussions sort of the types of concussions is there anything that we can do around that um I think that's it's really difficult to put um, sort of like a definition on there, just because again, that data doesn't necessarily exist. So like we're we're just in the last five years, maybe really starting to appreciate the effect of early life concussions, multiple concussions. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm working now with um, ex, you know experts in say pediatric concussion who have large clinical databases of kids who had concussions. Um, you know, and just now they're starting to develop the data of like, um, you know, the severity, how they interact, what it may, may, how it may affect, uh, long-term neurodevelopment, uh, what's the effect of other environmental exposures. So I'm particularly interested in, uh, babies who are born preterm, which is often, mm-hmm. often associated with, um, a change, uh, or sort of inflammation at, at the start and may affect development of the brain. And then what happens if those kids who function, you know, normally the majority of them, if they then play soccer or football and get a concussion later in life. So we're mm-hmm. only just starting to put that data together. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's definitely an increasing appreciation of, um, you know, particularly, so if you think of, if you think of kids and uh, TBI is still the, the most common cause of death in the U S and kids aged like zero to four, um, wow. as well as later in teenage years. So it's very common. Um, and then obviously like there are kids, you know, the majority of kids don't die, but you know, they fall and hit their head and then what happens the years after. And, you know, there's definitely an increased, um, risk of 
you know, behavioral or mental health uh, disorders uh, in these kids because they you know, took a bang so, so early in life. So, you know, when you have a history of that and you start to see these things, then I think you then you can say, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the brain injury is a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like, what would you then think about doing it? You know, it's, it's also, there are plenty of nutritional and lifestyle strategies you can start to put in place, none of which are particularly onerous. Um, yeah. and again, like I can't, you know, there's no huge clinical data set to say this yeah, is definitely going to be beneficial, but, you know, so putting those things in place, I think are, are certainly worthwhile. Um, so, it, so again, it's, it's very difficult to say, yes, because this happened, you're going to have, a, you know, you're definitely going to have this or, you know, you have some kind of noticeable deficit, mm-hmm. um, you know, however, you know, people who are really interested in this, obviously there are, um, a, a number of cognitive tests and tasks and things that you can try out on yourself and certainly if you want to put things into place um you can then see whether things improve um mm-hmm. and then there's also you know i'm a big fan of subjective quality of life uh, you know yeah. and if somebody is having trouble sleeping or they have you know brain fog or you know any of these other symptoms and they have a significant history of concussions then i would probably in a, be in a position to say yes these are at least part of that um, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, again, you know, think about putting some of these things in place. Okay. This is awesome, Tommy. Thank you uh, so much. So uh, before we kind of move on into what I like to call the the final four questions, because uh, look, I, I want to talk to you again, but I know cognizant of time that I don't want to take your entire day, especially because it's busy election day. Um, <laughs> but, um, barbecue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> completely unrelated topic. And at some point we're going to have to get, do an in-person challenge. Cause I have a bit of a barbecue history myself. Uh-huh. How did you pick it up and what's sort of your, are, are you talking grilling? Or are you talking low and slow on the smoker kind of thing? Yes. So I, I must admit that right now I am more of an accomplished barbecue eater than a, okay. than a barbecue producer. Okay. Um, but but certainly when I've I have learned that when um, what I called a barbecue in the UK is what should be called grilling, yes, um, very 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 true, <laughs> and and definitely not what barbecue is uh, in in the US. So I uh, I can I can put together a pretty decent um, slow cooker pulled pork um, mm-hmm. that that you know at least I can get Southerners to eat. Um, like, so my wife's family are all from North Carolina, which, you know, North Carolina barbecue is like whole, whole oh, hog vinegar pork, sauce pork. too. Yeah. Yeah. And which actually I really like, I much prefer okay. like the vinegar, vinegar sauces or mustard based sauces are certainly my preference. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's just like I grew up. So you don't know this about me, but I grew up competing in barbecue and probably have oh, a cool. more accomplished barbecue resume than most things I've ever done in my life. Uh, but I, I grew up doing Memphis barbecue, which is a little bit different. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, look, I can appreciate a good Carolina sauce when I find a good Carolina sauce. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but I, but I will say um, that my personal preference is brisket. Mm-hmm. Like okay. I could eat good brisket all day, every day. And this is one of the this is one of the main benefits of uh, working with Formula One is that every year, well, not this year, but every year, uh, the U.S. Grand Prix takes place in Austin, and so oh. I get to go to Austin and basically eat brisket for every meal for three days uh, or five days. 
before and I fly Austin, home. Austin's certainly a great place to find brisket too. Like Texas yeah. makes the best brisket. I can't, can't hold a candle to them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So going into the final four questions now, think of these as kind of rapid fire, just fun questions, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your top trick for enhancing your focus? Is it your Chemex coffee or something else? Um, yeah, the, the top trick that I have, I, I learned from a friend of mine called James Hewitt, who I also know through hints of working with the Formula One drivers, which is basically um, avoiding what he calls cognitive middle gear. So it's just avoid, it's essentially the avoidance of multitasking. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get rid of all, all these other things that are trying to just distract your attention, which basically results in you doing lots of poor, poor quality work, which mm-hmm. actually, and there's an analogy in um, training or any kind of training, particularly endurance training, which is that most people spend most of their time in middle gear, which is just thrashing themselves around lactate threshold, which has mm-hmm. the, the biggest effect in terms of um, like physiologically demanding on the body with, with the smallest return in terms of performance. And so um, the cognitive middle gear, middle gear is the same. And if anybody is interested in that, I definitely recommend looking him up. But that's that's the... Basically, eliminating multitasking, uh, which I was never any good at anyway, is is the best way to improve a cognitive mm-hmm. performance. Favorite book, or actually, let's reframe that book, which has most impacted your life. Um, I think just because of all um, just the the amazing things that I learned about uh, humans and animals from it is probably "Behaved" by Robert Sapolsky. It, it hasn't hasn't been beaten yet um and just so much you know if, if you want to know about where why humans behave the way they do and why most of the things that we're concerned about really make such a small difference um then definitely read that it's an epic tome i will say that and very dense but just fascinating you know i've had it sitting by my bed for a while and just because as you say it is an epic tome it's been one of those things that i've been delaying it was actually recommended by greg who was the guy who connected us oh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. but i uh after this i'll have to start picking it up and see how we go with it what excites you most about the health world right now um i think what what i think is excites me and is hopefully going to pan out is the increasing focus on helping people change behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we we know, and I know as somebody who spends most of my time giving people information about their health, um, I know that giving people information is not what improves their health. Um, it's actually supporting them to, to make those changes, uh, which is very difficult particularly in the environment that we exist in. So there's a big focus on behavior change, which is actually finally starting to include experts in behavior change rather than just some tech kids from Stanford saying, oh yeah, I can solve behavior change. (laughs) By shortening your feedback loops. (laughs) Yeah, and and just failing massively because they don't Mm. understand the problem. Um, So so that I think is, is definitely something I'm excited about. And then the other thing that I'm excited about is the fact that there's an increasing focus on um, diversity and inequity, particularly in health data. Um, mm-hmm. And so like when I'm looking at polygenic risk scores and they've removed all the data from non-white people because it makes the polygenic risk score less accurate, like immediately I just, it, I just, I'm so frustrated. I throw my hands up in the it's air. It's infuriating, and, like, right? It's, in, it's absolutely infuriating. And these, and 
you know, in, in general, if you think about the US, the UK, other populations, the people who require this the most are, are the people who you're removing from the data set because they make it less accurate. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just it's just insane. It's, and it's just, I've, I've basically said before, and I've gotten some pushback from it, but I believe in it, that when you do this, you're in, essentially encoding racism into science, right? Yeah. Because you're just you're propagating these inequities. Um, and so it's from a health data standpoint. So again, like most of the, if we think about cardiovascular disease risk markers, they were developed from the Framium cohort in, in uh, Framium, Massachusetts, which is essentially all white people. And then when yeah. you look at those biomarkers, they don't predict cardiovascular disease nearly as well in black people or people from uh, of other heritages. So like mm-hmm. all the data we have just, isn't relevant to, to to this huge section of society who are also, um, you know, have far less privilege, but for many other reasons. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm really happy that that people are starting to um, focus on that. The the one potential downside, which still has a lot of work to be done, is that you know we, we look at demographics when we're when we're trying to analyze health data. So we'll we'll say you know how how do you identify you know it's black or Hispanic or, or white or, or something else. But the problem is that when that's the only major identifier that you have and you put that in a, into a statistical analysis, what you risk doing is saying that um, race has a distinct biological effect on health, which mm-hmm. it doesn't. Right? There's, yeah. And there's lots of data to, to show that it doesn't. But uh, if you don't do it correctly and, and acknowledge the fact that the reason why being black is um, you know, associated with a with worse health outcome is because of the sort of distal societal problems rather than because there's some health effect of being black, which for most healthcare problems is absolutely not the case. You know, so we we just have to be really careful about how we analyze the data Mm -hmm. uh, because you can also, again, start to sort of encode these inequities and and assume that it's an effect of race when in fact it's an effect of society. Um, So I'm really excited that people are starting to focus on on that as well. Um, and, And I think that's what, you know, I kind of moved away from some of the, uh, elite performer world. I mean, I still do some of it, but I, I'm doing less of that because I think the people who need this the most are the people who don't have the privilege and the money um, to, you know, immediately change their environment. Um, and and so that's that's where I'd like to focus more of my efforts. Amazing, Tommy. We didn't even get into blue zones and resistance training. <laughs> There's so many topics that I can go down wormholes with you on. Um, where can people find out more about you? Um, the, the best place to probably come is Instagram. That's where I probably post most frequently. So I'm at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. Um, I have a website, uh, drragnar.com, R-I-G-N-A-R, um, mm-hmm. which hasn't been updated for a while, but there's some old blog posts there. And when the RSS feed is working, then when I post on Twitter and Instagram and stuff, it, it pops up there. And there's, there's also usually a, like a list of all my publications and stuff if people are interested in those kinds of things. Very cool. Tommy, thank you again for coming on. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm sure we're going to yeah, have to do you. it again and do it again soon over some brisket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll have coffee and brisket. Perfect. There you go. It's an interesting combination. Maybe <laughs> split out over t- <laughs> brisket is for breakfast. Over now. a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate all your time. When Tommy and I were exchanging emails and messages beforehand, I came up with numerous topics that I wanted to tackle with him, and we only got through about three of those today. So suffice to say, I'd love to have Tommy back on the show, and I want to hear from you guys what you got out of this episode. If you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a five-star rating, 
It really helps. Or leave a comment on YouTube, Instagram, wherever you are, and just let us know what you thought. The show notes again for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Tommy. And thank you again for your ears, superhumans. It's been a pleasure. All feedback can be fed into podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com. And I wish you an absolutely epic day.